0: Hey, up, and welcome to the Strategy Sessions. My name is Andy Jarvis. I'm the Strategy Director at XMO Marketing and the host of the show. Today, I'm joined by Bethan Vincent, who is a strategist. So expect the word strategy and strategist and various versions of it to be used quite a lot in the next 50 minutes. Bethan is a strategist, as I've just said, and also the managing partner at Open Velocity, a fractional CMO firm that does strategy for a lot of clients. Um, Probably the most I've used the word strategy in an introduction to an episode is this. So it's probably about time I just stopped saying strategy and got on with the strategy sessions so that we, you can listen to Bethan and I talk about strategy for a little bit. If that sounds like a good strategy, enjoy. Off we go. So today's guest on the strategy sessions is Bethan Vincent. Bethan, how are you doing?
1: I am good, thank you. The sun is shining, the weather is slightly warmer, so it's all good.
0: It's spring. Spring has returned. I've been podcasting in the dark for about the last six months, it feels, doing afternoon episodes and lights rigged up here, there, and everywhere. Now I've had to shut the light out. It's wonderful. So, right. We are here to talk about strategy and that's what you do. Um, So we met at a conference this week, only this week, and now you're here on the podcast. That must be the quickest guest ever. So tell us about your current role.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm the managing partner at Open Velocity, we're a marketing strategy consultancy. So we we work with a lot of kind of startup scale up companies, helping them with their marketing strategy. And essentially, you know, what that looks like in terms of the challenge they have is normally we've done a lot of sales and product led growth, and now we need marketing. What is marketing? <laughs> you know, we so it's technical founders. You know, they they haven't done it before, and and that's great. That's really exciting. Or You know, we're looking at a different market geographically or we're looking at introducing a new product, new service. How do we do that? So we kind of call it capital, well, marketing with a capital M, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting, I think, when you go into places where they don't have a real clear idea of what marketing is, because in my experience, that tends to lead them into thinking marketing is just the promotion aspect of marketing, the communication aspect. Is that what you're brought in to do initially and you have to spend a lot of time going, yeah, but, or, you know, do you kind of nail that right at the beginning?
1: We, we do try and nail that right at the beginning. And again, when we're chatting to people, you know, especially in the, in the exploratory initial conversations, you know, we're asking questions like, okay, so how did you arrive at your pricing strategy? Okay. So what, what does product look like in your organization? Who's deciding, you know, the product roadmap and all of that. So, I think it's it's always you know presenting marketing as that wider surface area, I'm not just talking about promotion. And I'd say any marketer should be doing this. You know, don't feel left out, especially because products become its own kind of thing. I think marketers always feel like, oh, we can't do product anymore because product owns that. No, we should be involved in asking those questions. Mm-hmm. So what,
0: this is a bugbear of mine in tech companies, particularly that product sits very separately to marketing. Um, because, well, marketers don't understand product, they just do ads or something like that. But surely, I mean, the, the four P's of marketing have product right there at the beginning of it, right? So why is why did this happen? Is it a market has been awful or is it product people being great? What, what?
1: I, I think it's almost like it's the professionalization of this kind of layer of marketing, right? And I think the challenge was that especially product within a tech, a SaaS company, they do actually have to understand engineering or at least kind of engineering challenges, how engineering teams work and marketers were always kind of distanced from that you know, we were seen as the fluffy creative people you come to when you want a pretty picture or a Christmas party. And actually, it's really interesting when you deal with, you know, technical ESCO, for example, as a sub-discipline of marketing, that's essentially as close to engineering as you can get, as in we're telling engineers, developers what to do. So I think product ended up this way just because marketing was seen as distanced from doing code technical stuff. So something had to fill that gap. But yeah, I completely agree. My, my argument is, and Product people hate me saying this. I was on Jason Knight's podcast when I said this, um, that products should be sat under marketing. Yeah. Controversial, but that's my view.
0: I, and I, I think in there are many good reasons why they, they should report. In, in an organization of the right size, reporting to the CMO um, because it is your main interaction with the customers in SaaS businesses is via um, the, the product. And in the few percentage of cases where it goes wrong, the customer service team. Yet, they often sit outside marketing. You're like, so, well, if marketing is about the interaction with the customer, where, where do What's you What's going there? on? Yeah.
1: yeah. I actually, I used to work earlier on in my career. I was part of a cross-functional product team. So that was quite nice. That was, the, I don't know if people have kind of seen the... Um, you know, squad style of setting up a team within you know large software organizations so you know Netflix people like that Amazon so it was me marketing we had a product manager we had a UX researcher we had a developer and a designer and that was a really nice combination because we could actually ship end to end you know a, a new feature and marketing had been at the heart of that conversation which I loved so that was quite a nice model but it's 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 hard for larger organizations to scale that model unless they have the squad structure, but it's also really hard for small startups to have that kind of structure as well. Cause it, it relies on, you know, a team dynamic where it's very open, honest, trusting, less hierarchical. So yeah, it is one of those where it's like, Oh, great in theory, but actually in practice, you still need a leader. and You need an owner.
0: I mean, so regular listeners will be falling asleep now when I mention the words Procter and Gamble, because I've had, a number of people from P&G on the show and I love talking to them mainly because of the way they approach marketing but they have those cross-functional teams there's finance there's product there's distribution but at the heart of every one of those teams is marketing and I've been lucky enough to work with he a, 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 a was chief finance officer at the time of a company so his background was all finance but he'd come through P&G and had sat in those teams which are and not necessarily 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 say led by marketing, but heavily influenced by marketing. and probably one of the sharpest marketers I've ever worked with his job was chief Finance officer uh, but understood marketing in a way that ninety nine percent of people I ever meet do not understand it. but that was the p and g when people go, oh yeah, but that's p and g and he go well, do you think p and G got that big by accident or yeah. do you think they got that big because they work at it? and When you look around, the clues are all there, aren't they? And I think if you put marketing at the heart of it, I mean, market advocates for marketing, (gasps) shock. (laughs) But I think the I think the evidence is there that that's where we should be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I think it, it's really difficult if you're incumbent in an organization that doesn't have that mindset. You know, how do you change the position of marketing? If you're sat, you know, if you're a listener sat here and you're you're thinking, oh, it's great. You're talking about me getting involved in product and pricing and the million P's there are now apparently for marketing. But actually, I'm stuck in this little corner and I've been boxed in. What do I do about that? And that's a really interesting question. And I think that's a that's an organizational challenge. But also it's it's kind of almost like a structural perception of marketing. We as marketeers need to change across the board and not accept that we're just stuck in this little corner.
0: Um, thank you for continuing that answer while I was choking just back there. Excuse me a minute. Um, <clears throat> there we go. Problem solved now. So is the, because what I see in marketing is actually the fragmentation of the marketing role. So uh, I talked to this with Mike Ritson on the show many months ago. And The question I asked him was, "Is there anything marketers are more terrible at than pricing?" Now he said strategy, but uh, you know I, I'd probably advocate for pricing. But if we now in SaaS world at least, not just in SaaS actually, most companies' product belongs somewhere else with somebody technical. Pricing doesn't sit in marketing, often led by sales, um, maybe senior teams. So from product, we don't do that. The price, we don't do that. Many companies want to hit a certain scale distribution and the, or the place element doesn't sit in marketing. Maybe you might argue the website bit does, but then you end up with dev teams sort of saying, well, we don't want to sit in marketing, we're technical, we're dev, which leaves marketing as the promotion function, yeah. the and in department, the ministry of pretty pictures, whatever it is that you want to call it. But is that led by company, by marketers not having the right skills, and it, or is it led by actually it makes sense when you get to a certain scale to have specialisms in each of those?
1: a uh, 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 little from column a a little from column b i think in an ideal world it's about the marketing leader in that organization being skilled enough to deal with pricing promotion place all mm-hmm. of the p's um and bringing together the sub you know team together around that that that's a big issue and you end up with a lot of cmos who frankly are shit and sat in those positions you know because of tenure often you know they've been around for long enough so they might as well get the top seat so you don't have the person in the right seat but I think also that there's an issue at at, a scale you do need to have devolved decision making as well Mm -hmm. and you you do need to have those kind of sub teams so there's this real kind of tension within organizations about how, how do we make decisions at scale rapidly and not have a bottleneck of one person um, and also that's to do with kind of command and control style organisational structures that are often being broken down at the moment. So lot, you know, lots more organisations are realising, huh, people are more engaged if they actually can make decisions in this organisation. Imagine who, that. Who knew? I mean, um, I mean the fact
0: that they discovered that on um, car manufacturing lines in Japan yeah. in the 1950s, didn't they? Where if you went from the Henry Ford model of someone put everyone puts their own bolt in to a squad approach, as it'd be called now, and let people make decisions and decide how they're, Imagine so now we've worked that out 70 years later
1: yeah so I think what I'm trying to say is like this kind of change in the issue isn't just to do with like skill set or like autonomy to own a certain area it, it's it's to do with like the evolving nature of organizations having to figure out you know how, how do we structure ourselves you know remote is a really big question for organizations how how do we have you know a structure that allows for remote hybrid working how do we have a structure that allows devolved decision making and how do we have a structure that incorporates lots of very hyper specialist roles because again specialization is only going to kind of continue in the long run uh, I mean, you may say AI kind of breaks that. And, you know, I'm quite excited by the fact that I can now write code with <laughs> chat GPT-4. Amazing. So developers, sorry, I'm now in control of the website again. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you know, they're, they're dealing with all of this kind of fragmentation. And with, with if specialization continues, how do you bring back specialization into a decision-making process? And that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, and, and I think the key thing that I have learned over the years so I have two, an undergrad in sort of sport management and marketing, postgrad in, in marketing and done several marketing courses along the way as well. And it was only when I did Ritson's mini MBA in marketing that was the first time I had any proper training on pricing. Yeah. Um, so 20 years in, I actually got some proper training on pricing. Now I've been involved in pricing in different organizations at the very beginning of my career and before I moved out on my own, but... It was guesswork, right? You know, some yeah. awful decisions we made. So the training was, i you know, my training wasn't there anyway. And I'm involved teaching at a degree now at a postgrad at John Moore's Uni in Liverpool. There's nothing about pricing in that, as far as I can tell. And you start to look at it and go, okay, well, if we haven't got the skills uh, coming through in, in new marketers, you've got to learn them on the job. Okay, How can we bring marketing's importance back if, if people don't have the skills? But th- the thing I keep coming back to is who's advocating for the customer? because when fragmentation happens as you're talking about there's so many examples of fragmentation that you see as a consumer using a custom, using a company and you, you start to realize go, well the left hand's not talking to the right you know, you hear this all the time listening to people and go well why is that and it's like, because you're fragmented as an organization because that will be looked after by them and not by them so surely that's how marketing get back into the hot seat if you want to call it that but being the voice of the customer in the organization is that the future
1: Well, the the organisation has to want to listen to the voice of the customer. And, you know, you've probably seen this in your work. You go into so many organisations and they say the customer comes first or customer centric. And then you look under the hood and they're very clearly not, you know, there's no insight. There's no even like basic, like, do we talk to our customers and ask them what they want and what their experience is? So, like kind of I'm not saying you're blaming marketing here but kind of putting the onus on marketing and saying well you if you advocate for the customer and make sure you're perceived as the voice of the customer you will get Mm buy-in I don't think it's quite that simple in some that's my utopian
0: dream is it is
1: that yeah I think and what is utopia utopos a place that can never be right so we've got to be maybe a bit more kind of pragmatic about actually Yeah, you know, ideally, we would own the voice of the customer, we would be the voice of the customer, we would own customer experience, but that's not necessarily going to be an organization's top priority, their top priority will be revenue. So my argument is that while yes, we need to be seen to be doing that, actually, what we need to be doing is getting ourselves closer to revenue and speaking the language of the business, which is ultimately profit, finance.
0: And, and, you know, the number of, uh, probably the thing I say more than anything else to marketing teams I work with is turn your reports around. I'll turn them upside down. Um, The reports will always be something of interest to marketing, something else of interest to marketing. And somewhere buried in it, if it's a positive number, will be something with a pound sign or a euro sign in front of it or a dollar sign. And you're like, wait, why is that on page three halfway down that I've got to go hunting for? Put that at the top and then explain how you got there instead of explaining how you got there and getting to it. It feels like I've invented fire when I talk to companies about this. And you'd say, it's not that fucking difficult.
1: No, it's not. But we've, but we've been told for so long that's where you sit and the, you know, brand fluffy metrics are the things you should be interested in. I'm not saying you shouldn't be, by the way. I think they're really important kind of like leading indicators that are indicative of something indicative of progress and performance mm-hmm. But yeah, the, you know, if you've probably if you're sat here thinking, oh, my God, I feel so seen with my reports, <laughs> you know, I need to turn them back around. And that's an amazing tip, by the way. Um, You know, ask yourself, like, why have I, why am I presenting my reports in this way? Who who has kind of taught me that this is the right of, way of doing it? And it's probably because you've been sat in a little echo chamber with other marketeers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Again, you know, I'm, I'm being quite blunt here, but. Again, that's what I see a lot when I go and work with, you know, marketing teams and, and organizations. The marketing team just sits together and just, you know, sits in their little world. And they don't want to talk to sales because sales are mean to them. And sales are asking difficult questions like, get me more leads by tomorrow. And, you know, well, like the answer to that is it's not that simple. Sales, like, come on. They don't want to have that conversation. They don't want to explain to kind of stakeholders that actually like... Marketing isn't necessarily that simple, especially in B2B. It's a complex web of touch points, blah, 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 blah. But we always seem very defensive. I don't know if that's something you've kind of come across, but marketing always seems very defensive about its work and about the results it's kind of giving.
0: Yeah. I, and I think there's a little bit of um uh, learned behavior in that. Maybe, yeah. you know, you know that when cuts come in an organization they tend to land on marketing and marketing and training first tend to get hammered in in every organization when when cuts are needed but i think that the reaction to that is to always to show that the the sun is shining and something's worked so that leads us to polishing reports with dog shit metrics um instead of you know so oh look the the reach of this campaign is three million didn't actually sell anything But by doing that, all that you do is reinforce the lack of credibility that you have, which means you're the first one on the chopping block when something happens. If you, Even if it's a ship, even if the metric is terrible, as in you've spent X amount and you've not actually generated any revenue from it, and this is the worst campaign you've ever run, I think you build credibility by explaining this is what we think went wrong. Now, if you do that in every single campaign that you've done, that's just because you shit at your job and you'll probably be asked to leave. But sometimes stuff doesn't work. And if you can deconstruct it and explain why you think that's gone wrong and what you're going to do different next time, that builds trust at senior levels of an organization rather than trying to convince them that something that was terrible worked. And if you yeah, do and- it in terms that they use, all the better.
1: Yeah. And they can see through it. You know, that one of the best pieces of, I've, of advice I've ever had from a CFO is, you know, don't include every metric just because you think I want to see everything. I don't. And also, you know, if you can't put something in, if there's a data point you don't have, tell me what you don't know, because that's actually quite interesting to me. You know, what, what are we basing these assumptions on? You know, what is the known knowns, unknown knowns, all of that kind of stuff? Because I might, as the fi- CFO, might be able to help you fill in some of those gaps. And especially if I'm using, you know, things like forecasts, for example, to forecast revenue, I really need to know the assumptions this is based on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, what's the fragility in this report? So, yeah, the honesty goes a long way, actually. And, uh, yeah, there's I can I can tell. When a team is very underconfident by their reports, which is quite interesting, you you can you can yeah. you Where, where's it, where's
0: the where's the value hidden? You know, like, yeah, know? yeah. There's an apology somewhere halfway through the report, and uh, yeah, there's a confidence involved in putting a terrible revenue figure at the top of a report of a campaign, isn't there? Like, look how badly we've done. It, It it builds confidence. It's a counterintuitive point. Your failure will build confidence if you handle it in the right way. Continued failure won't, but not everything works. And the chief exec probably got to being chief exec by getting a few things wrong along the way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I, I do agree with your point, though, that not everything can be wrong. And that is a really quick way to destroy confidence where you're adding no no value. And if you can't evidence your value, that's a huge issue for you as a team, you probably personally as well. But I guess my caveat, you know, bloody hell marketing, caveat, 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 it depends. You know, we're about to enter an age, you know, Rand Fishkin wrote a really great article on this, how to measure, how to measure marketing. We're entering the age where we've been so used to be able to attribute every click and see every customer interaction that has been taken away from us. So we're entering this age of obscurification of marketing metrics where we're not going to be able to present stakeholders, you know, put X in, got Y out. And we saw this with you know, the, all the iOS changes. If you're doing any kind of you know Facebook marketing or you know, that kind of stuff, it, it's been quite a, a shock to have that rug pulled out under you. So I again, just on this reporting point, I'd be thinking about now, how do I explain to stakeholders the fact that I've, my reporting is going to look different? And I'm not going to be able to have the same level of confidence. And GA4 is part of this conversation as well, because some of your metrics you're reporting on, you know, they'll they'll change and they won't necessarily match kind of historically, if that makes sense. But really think about this now, because this is going to be a problem for you over the next couple of years.
0: So I've just had a quick look at your um, CV on LinkedIn and I can tell from when you went to university that I am uh, have a few more candles on my birthday cake than you did. And I remember the good old days. And I'm actually really looking forward to this age of shit attribution. Yeah. Because yeah. when I started in marketing, you didn't have, uh, so I, the first website I ever got involved with was a MySpace website, which will age me perfectly. It. And,
1: oh God,
0: Did you I have it. sparkly HTML? Um, yeah, all, yeah all sorts of stuff yeah. come down. And the music of the wrong artist came on. Anyway, it was, but anyway look, it was MySpace. And I'd been working for a number of years before that came around. So you you had to prove the value in things and you couldn't prove value by talking about open rates or click through rates or, or (laughs) your value was proved by. So if we did that thing, what was the impact on sales? (laughs) And you'd be like, and we ran a campaign once. I used to work at Durham County Cricket Club. I was marketing manager there. And for the first time, TalkSpot bought the overseas rights to England playing cricket and we look, And they were playing, I think they were playing in Sri Lanka, somewhere in Asia, so the time difference wasn't ideal, right? So there was radio advertising available at 4am in the morning, and it was for nothing because nobody was listening. And talks, but when we are speaking to them, they were like, why don't you go prime time in drive time? And we're like, I want to be when the cricket's on. Yeah, but we could do you like evening drive time, and then you'll get this reach. I was like, I want to be when the cricket's on. And... Um, we then ended up having to open the box office at 6 a.m. Because in those days, you had to ring up to buy a ticket. And the box office were coming in to like 150 voicemail messages for people who'd been, who gets up at 4 a.m. to listen to the cricket? Cricket badges. People yes. who love cricket dearly get up at 4 a.m. to listen to the cricket. And then you hear an ad saying, come watch England play at Durham. And we're only targeting the Northeast. And they lift the phone up and they oh, why aren't you there? So we ended up and like, hmm. We'd measured that on revenue. Now, not everything worked with that cause and effect, and it was brilliant. But we had to measure everything through how many tickets did we sell, and when did that activity happen, and what happened with the sales spikes. And there was a lot of guesswork in it, but every metric had a pound sign at the beginning of it, every yeah. single one. You think, are we going back that way? Because if we are, I'm on that bus, right? I'm I'm all for it.
1: Yeah, and it's quite interesting because, you know, you, you see some people kind of writing about, oh, the good old days of advertising about, you know, Don Draper spending millions of pounds on, you know, message campaign, TV ad that goes out to millions, tens of hundreds of millions of people. I think, yes, we're going back to those days in the sense of it's going to be less directly attributable. God, that's word, isn't it? And, you know, you're going to have to do more kind of like, it, like you say, inspecting on time all of or you know, breaking it down like that. But the media frag- landscape is so fragmented now. That's the real difference. That's not what we've had before. So, you know, I no longer can, as a, you know, I'm talking about a really large advertiser with a massive budget, say, you know, I'm going to target, you know, after EastEnders, 8 p.m. Everyone's going to put their kettle on and I know I'm going to get this level of exposure to this type of audience. Yeah. Actually, well... The caveat, I guess, or the counterpoint to that is, programmatic in terms of digital TV becomes very interesting because actually you can be hyper targeted with that, and that, and, and I'm seeing a lot of um, interesting stuff around the podcast space as well. You know, you can be hyper targeted in terms of understanding the profile of, let's say, this podcast. You know, if you want to market to marketeers interested in strategy, this is a perfect yeah. one.
0: Yeah, so absolutely. Um, advertisers, my rates are very, very uh, competitive at the moment. Um... Oh, I had two sponsors. No, it doesn't matter. Anyway, we'll move away from me selling sponsorship. It's not. It's fine. <laughs> I, I think one of the interesting things is that you know the the media landscape. So, did Al Kasab when he was on chief marketing officer for Channel Four used to talk about also Procter and Gamble? Um, talks about his first media plan used to fit on a sheet of A4. Now it it needs a whole wall. And I think that um, you know, that approach of there is going to be a little bit of gut feeling guesswork because you're not just going to be able to like i had one radio campaign running from 4am so you knew that if the phone was ringing it was that you got the inevitability is you're going to have lots of different things spinning at the same time and then budget gets cut and you're gonna to have to work out so do we dial podcast back or radio back and it, look and the thing to do i think is to get comfortable with being able to test better and geographic tests and things like that and going back. But none of this is new, right? In the old, in the old days, um, TV ads used to be tested in Northern Ireland because you could test it and you wouldn't get any spillover. So you'd not get, um, if you're on the borders of Scotland and England, you could pick up STV as well as um, Tyne T's TV. Couldn't get that in Northern Ireland. You got Northern Irish TV and that was it. So you could sandbox tests. Great. It's not new. You know, I I am a big believer in everything in marketing's been done before. Just Absolutely. as an entire label on.
1: Yeah. And it's it's just felt a thought for me that what's quite interesting with the kind of media fragmentation and, and better audience kind of targeting, what that forces marketers to do is really understand the audience they're targeting, you know, like who who actually are we going after. Again, nothing new. Yeah. But, but if but you we're want back to, offer, to yeah the voice of customer,
0: want, who's the exactly. voice of customer? Yeah. yeah. Um, if, if, Yeah, so so we've come full circle. That's it. Thanks very much. End the podcast now. Boom, right. Um, But it is, it's back to the crucial importance is who's your audience? Who's going to buy the product and why are they going to buy it? And what difference is it going to make to them? What are their reasons for purchasing it? And that to me is kind of the, the core of any marketing strategy. Who are you targeting? Why are they going to buy from you? What are your objectives for this year? And what problem are you going to solve for them? If we answer those four questions, I mean, the number of times people say, give me a strategy and then I explain what, that's yeah. the sort of thing and they're like so what we're gonna do on Twitter I was like,
1: that's yeah, not strategy, like that's yeah
0: tactics we'll do that yeah.
1: and the difference between strategy and tactics is is kind of one of the big I guess things that you know my my kind of posts on LinkedIn and stuff are normally they're normally rants let's be honest like all good content comes from the heart <laughs> yeah to me <laughs> roll my it's normally- sleeves
0: up and I'm going to tell everybody on LinkedIn they're wrong today. Um, well
1: it's normally i've seen some like growth hacker tech bros post around like mm-hmm. if you want to succeed in marketing this is the list of like 50 things you need to do pm me for it Just like such engagement bait i can't deal yeah. anyway and like doing a list of kind of 50 tactics is not a strategy
0: no it is not it is a list of 50 tactics um so uh, Two two things to mention at that point. Um, Pep Leia, who was previously on the podcast, was on the podcast because I I was that dick on LinkedIn who he posted something, and I remember the opening line was the story is the strategy. And I don't I was sat in an airport, I was like, I've fucking had enough of this, right? Yeah, yeah, when, yeah. You know, yeah. Mate, I don't usually do that, and I did. Now, to be fair to the man, I then sent him a direct message. I was like, I think I was a bit over the top there. Do you want to come on and discuss it on the podcast? And we did, but that's fine. But the other one is JP Castlin, previously of this parish. He used to be a lawyer who got into sort of business strategy rather than marketing strategy. But his big beef with marketing is that no term is defined properly. In law, every term has a particular meaning. And he said, so the language of marketing is meaningless because no one agrees on what it is. So when you say, all oh, the difference between strategy and tactics, I mean, I, I'm utterly convinced I am right on what my definition of strategy and tactics is, but oh, there's other people out there who think slightly differently, right?
1: So... But that's interesting. I don't agree it should be completely defined. I think it's really interesting to have these conversations about what strategy is and how we leverage it and how we conceptually kind of define it. Because I, I personally, like I... I do strategy. I know what I, I do know what strategy is because I deliver it. You know, it's a, it's what I sell. But I I still find it very interesting to kind of unpick it. And I, it, it obviously comes from kind of war terminology, right? You know, you've yeah. got a finite set of resources, you've got a landscape, you've got to operate on, and you've got to deploy those resources effectively to win. And it, strategy is about winning. People forget that it is how you, under your constraints in your landscape, are going to win.
0: Where do you play? How to win? As um... yeah. Yeah, as it would refer to, and I think in simple terms, when I talk to organisations, again, I try not to use marketing terminology because marketers disappear up their own ass when they start talking about uh, metrics and CPCs and whatever. So I, I rarely use them when I'm talking to clients because I, I much prefer talking to the senior team. The the marketers, you learn much more. But my general demarcation is, and say, look, if you think of it in these two terms strategy is where you're going. Tactics is yeah. how you're going to get there. Yeah. And if you just keep those two things in mind, let's talk about where we're going first. So where to play, how to win, that sort of stuff. That's the direction we want to travel in. Give it to the marketing team and they'll work out how best to get there and measure them against that. their progress to that objective. Oh, but we will need them to organize a Christmas party. Where's that on the where yeah. we're going? Oh yeah, but who else is going to do it? I don't give a fuck, but that's not, not marketing. <laughs> yeah yeah move there so um yeah so who should organize the christmas party that's the key question
1: i well okay so in my business it's me and as though I'm, I don't know we're very small so I guess I can kind of get away with it. But I see that the job of the you know servant you leadership. Your, you live
0: in Yorkshire, so you keep hold of the purse strings, don't you? That's all it is. Oh you know, yeah, you know, no. Like, where can we jealous. go that's really cheap?
1: Yeah. Does anyone just want a pie and gravy, please? <laughs> but no, it, it is a really important question. I think actually it does sit with the people team. You've got to be large enough to have a people team, you know, because it is it's it's something that is about you know taking care of your people, giving them a good you know experience and stuff internally but it's not marketing that, that i am very certain of that it's not us um yeah
0: so t- tell me this because part of what open velocity do is that you are fractional cmos right so if you are um a regular on the internet you'll have realized that you never saw the phrase fractional cmo three years ago and now you can't turn linkedin on without seeing fractional cmo everywhere fractional even um so explain what a fractional CMO is and then we'll we'll dive into some of the challenges and the opportunities for that sort of approach yeah
1: sure so uh kind of Ron seal name says what it does on the tin you you go it's a it's a role within an organization at the CMO level that is done for a fraction of the time um so I think it's it's kind of born from the realization that especially a lot of startup and scale-up companies they would really benefit from someone who's been around the block a few times, frankly, kind of knows what's what's is sitting at that CMO kind of level. But the, the, either the company, you know, doesn't want to spend the salary cost on a full time CMO, which, you know, you're looking at north of 100k, if not a little bit more than that, to be perfectly honest now. And also, you know, frankly, they don't need that person full time, you know, they'll be twiddling their thumbs, they'll be doing lots of executional lifting and that kind of work, which isn't, again, cost effective for the business. And I think you're seeing this a lot we're in a very interesting kind of labor market as well, where obviously it's pretty tight. Um, it, it, it's, it's flexed a little bit in the last couple of months because we've had a lot of layoffs, but I'd still say at the senior level, it's a very tight labor market. So people are also realizing that actually, like, you know, I can kind of leverage my labor in a different way. It's quite interesting to work with lots of different clients. That's what I definitely get out of it. You know, mm-hmm. I have I've spent before I kind of did set up the business. I was client side for two and a half years. And it's lovely owning a brand end to end and all that kind of stuff, but the variety and the challenge is kind of, you know, what I love. You're bored,
0: right? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. I was I'll put words into your mouth, but you're bored, right? Bored. Yeah.
1: yeah, so that that's the essential premise and, and you're seeing it rising um, because, like I say, tight labor market, I think also tight funding conditions. So P and VC come back to companies. They love kind of fractional consultancy style roles because it's not a fixed cost in their balance sheet, which makes you know, investors a lot happier. So it's that kind of flexibility, really, and cost control that's really important there.
0: So coming back to where we started from about the, this devaluing, if you want to, to phrase it that, of marketing and organization and this um, fragmenting of it across different things. Is it really difficult as a effectively a part-timer, and I'm... I'm deliberately using kind of fairly negative language about the fractional cmo role just to try and poke you a little bit but um you know is it difficult then as a part-timer to advocate for the value of this service in an organization if the organization doesn't value it enough to have someone in full time doing that role
1: see i would take a different view they actually value you more because you're external you're an external pair of eyes and that's that's the thing about the role and people you know People set it up in different ways but you know you are still like an external kind of contractor coming in essentially Mm -hmm. and i think it is that kind of perspective you know i know from our our experience with clients that's what they really value but like i said been around the block seen things a few times before and we can kind of come and say like hey actually like what are you doing over here this is a bit ridiculous you know this doesn't work seen that before oh there's something here like we should double down on this this is working so um you know anyone with experience and expertise can advocate for something you don't I, i'm a big you know, this is kind of going on a bit of a, an aside but i'm a really big believer in kind of flexible working and that that's the future and that's the way actually of solving a lot of our labor market shortage issues and you're seeing the government as slowly in the uk turning onto that idea with the the budget kind of yesterday but um you know just time time is an indicator of value I think that's what I'm trying to get to. And just having someone sat with their bum on their seat for 40 hours a week and whatever, doesn't mean they're doing a good job. So we we need to break away from this idea that, you know, presenteeism is a determiner of success. It definitely isn't. And you can have a massive influence. You know, some of my clients, you know, I work with kind of a couple of days a month. And I know, I know from the results we get, I do have a massive influence there, but they're just not at the stage where they need someone full time
0: so the role of fractional cmo then which you've just sold to me is as yeah this is great so it's about the quality you deliver not the amount of time you sat there wonderful i agree with that when you're then developing strategy and you you said it as well you're cmo level so you're not doing the kind of on the ground delivery talk to me about how you walk a strategy through to execution when you're not there all the time, when you're not supposed to be getting involved, you know, rolling your sleeves up and getting stuck in, how do you manage that? And how do Open Velocity manage that sort of dichotomy between strategy and execution?
1: Yeah, I mean, normally with clients, it, it kind of depends, oh, such it depends answer, isn't it? Um, it depends on the client's needs, you know, what stage of business they're at, What you know, do they have existing internal marketing resource? Because sometimes our clients have quite a junior marketing team who are just maybe not pointed in quite the right direction. So, you know, there'll often be kind of a strategy phase of the project, which is answering all of these kind of fundamental questions. Where are you going? You know, unpicking the business strategy as well that's got to feed into that. And then when we get to, we almost kind of flip into an executional phase um that's where you know we might be coordinating resource you know part of the strategy is actually coming up with how the strategy is going to be delivered that's really important part of what's the resource plan so it could be leveraging freelancers and we might be involved in kind of coordinating briefing in you know quality checking can be agencies as well who are for all their kind of faults and you know i've worked with great agencies i've worked with some dog shade <laughs> so you said over the years they can be name a great and chip, pop-
0: name and chip. no <laughs> oh my god no, no, and, no, yeah. no we should no, have no. the
1: burn book no I'm just joking
0: <laughs> get the beep get the beep button out there I worked with beep <laughs> beep beep,
1: and beep and beep, it'd be, it wouldn't be well, it'd be quite a long list but anyway Um, <laughs> some you know also the agency is only as good as the kind of direction they're given from the clients so I think we're often received quite well by the agency partners we work with on clients because we're there to kind of Act as, the, act as the filter and the translator of what the agency wants to do and, and kind of bring that through to the board who maybe if they were just directly hiring the agency they wouldn't quite get it you know and understand what's going on Um. so yeah deliver, and delivery can also be building an in-house team and that's something we do with a lot of clients where we're building their capability internally and actually there will be a point where they say hey guys like great to work with you we actually want to hire a full-time CMO now so can you like do a handover and then leave and we're like perfect and that's that's happened with a couple of clients and that's normally after like 18 months where we've really got them to that stage but we ultimately want them to own their marketing function and to be able to build something that's very sustainable.
0: Yeah excellent so what do you think about the the sort of Tom Critchlow phrase the strategy and stewardship instead of ta- strategy and execution does that kind of sit well it seems to be what you're describing it's not that we've created this wonderful document now you minions go away and get yeah. on with it
1: yeah and, and, and then like so much of Tom's writing it's so kind of on the nose and, and kind of pointy and gets to the heart of the thing a lot of consultants especially strategy even management consultants they sell a powerpoint deck let's let's be honest and there might be some good stuff in there but I never want a client to be sat left thinking like oh shit how do we actually like do this you know, great ideas but like what's the doing? so yeah the steward stewardship is a really great way of putting it I think we, we kind of call it you know we're, we're kind of we're directors we're, we're you know directing the action and we're there to kind of help and there to support and we're there to enable as well.
0: You used a couple of times at, um so Learning Bound Dublin uh, Monday just gone you presented there great presentation loved it Um, I, it, it was right up my street as strategist right so all, all, all the G, um, Google Analytics 4 stuff psh, no idea somebody else. <laughs> Uh, so I, I loved it. But I, you, you used the word interpreter or translator several times during the yeah. presentation. You said it again here. And how important is that to understand the language all around you? So it's not just the language of the board and you have to translate for them, but about translating back to the marketing team as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that that's a hugely important part, because as I said, you know, marketers were often in a kind of little bubble and especially if you've you've only kind of progressed in your career in that bubble, suddenly then to be confronted by, you know, let's say a senior leadership team who are talking about revenue and talking about all of this stuff. And you're like, oh my God, I didn't need to know, or I didn't know I, I had to care about this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's really important that you have a, a marketing leader in place And that is the role of a leader, right, is Mm -hmm. to lead a team and also to help coordinate that team and buy the team into the direction that you're going into. And that does really kind of predicate on the fact that you're able to translate this is where we're going to, which will be set at a business level. So it will be using that kind of hard, spiky language back Mm -hmm. into something your team understands and can kind of get behind. Because I think. I realize as we're talking all of this, through, there's kind of a tension between me saying, oh, marketing's just the coloring in department and that's bad. Whereas, you know, actually creativity is a big part of our role and is very important. And I I don't want to kind of devalue that. But Mm -hmm. businesses don't care about creativity. They care about the results of creativity, if that makes sense.
0: And I think that's it as well, is that the creativity, when it's a bad thing, is often the starting point of the process. And it's not, you know, and and the point I come back to several times with some people is that Amazon is one of the ugly. If you pitched the the aesthetic of an Amazon website to a a, an e commerce client as a web designer, you your ass wouldn't be on the chair for more than twenty seconds before they laughed you out of the door. Yet it's one of the most brutally efficient websites. On, on the internet right it, it's just incredible at doing what it does which is taking money out of your pocket and into theirs um and then fiddling the tax and pushing it around differently but that's a, for that a helps thing. doesn't amazon's it amazon's <laughs> lawyers please um so the but the creativity is is a means to an end it, yeah yeah the end itself and i think that's what a lot of marketers get to, oh it looks wonderful who cares does it work let's does let's it? focus yeah. on that yeah, yeah absolutely
1: and it, it's interesting you know i I, I end up kind of uh, socializing in circles with art, lots of artists and kind of artistic people. And they're like, ah, eh, marketeers, like you're just creatives who've sold out. And, you know, that that's, again, it's supposed to be a provocative question. And it's meant to, you know, make me angry and whatever. And I kind of feel like, well, yeah, I'm I'm monetizing like my creative skill and making money. Sorry, you're not.
0: I did once have a, a very uh fraught conversation with a designer I worked with years ago when we were on a deadline over the deadline. I was like, listen, if you want to be an artist, fuck off and go and be an artist. This needs to be finished 10 minutes ago. Just get- oh, it's just not I don't care. No one cares about the kerning. Only you understand what that is. Just get it out. Um, but yes, I'm not as angry as these days. I'm just much calmer and much more. But <laughs> If marketing worked the way that most of the world think mar- thinks marketing works, you have these unbelievable powers of influence and you can um, uh, you could make people do things they don't want to do because that seems to be a... Or oh, marketing makes people buy things they don't want and yeah. do things they don't want. Tell us about your side hustle, for want of a better phrase, as um, a, a candidate in an election. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. If marketing so- had the superpowers that people attribute to marketers... Uh, you would be you wouldn't be here currently would you be in the house of commons
1: well i mean i stood for the green party so i think you know the the odds were stacked against me kind <laughs> of from the beginning um for various different reasons yeah politics is a really interesting place to look at kind of marketing in action and i think that comes down to kind of the changing the influencing of hearts and minds and yes there are kind of swing voters who who sit in those kind of marginal positions they might flip between lib dem conservative you know labor green labor lib dem and they are often very driven by local campaign issues so there'll be a single kind of issue or set of issues that Mm -hmm. will change their mind and if you can be really pointy in your messaging and speak to that you can you, you can move those swing voters but the more kind of entrenched positions that's in my opinion much harder or much more difficult for marketing to influence um you know for example, I'm never going to vote Tory and no amount of Facebook ads or anything, or even probably you know, unless they change to literally a different party in their policy decisions, that's the only thing that was sway my mind, and even then, I'm bloody pissed off at them, so I'm never voting for them, right so, you know, this idea that, you know just if you have a repetitive message, you get in front of it, enough in front of it, in front of someone, you know, and it's eye-catching and the creative's great, it, it doesn't work in practice someone has to be in market, they have to want Want what you're selling, right? You have to have a product worth buying. And I think a lot of political parties, especially, you know, frankly, I, I'm, I'd say Labour at the moment, they're not presenting a product worth buying.
0: Yeah. In my I, Without getting too political into this, I think uh, it feels like Labour's whole position is just to be we're not as crazy as them at the minute. Yeah, And, yeah. and
1: It's holding position, for yeah, sure.
0: You don't, you don't actually have to do anything. You just have to watch those idiots pull themselves apart, which is mildly funny if it wasn't so um, catastrophic for the country. Um, but it... What did you personally take away from standing as a candidate? What you know, what did you learn? Because you learn something from everything as a person, right? Yeah. You know, what, what did you take away from it?
1: I, I think I took away, and this is kind of a marketing lesson and kind of a sad lesson in how the world works. So when, when you stand as a candidate, you're given a candidate email. And I'm sure you've done this before in a general election. You'll sign a petition and you know you want that to go to the candidates. You want to understand the candidate's position on certain issues, which is all great. But when you get that email, you get literally hundreds of lobbying groups in that email saying, hey, like when you win, we're, you know, oil and gas or whatever. Can you, I was like, I stood for the Green Party, oil and gas, like what, you know, message audience match. (laughs) But, you know, you get hundreds of those saying like, hey, come to, you know, we've got tickets at Twickenham, come to a champagne reception. And I think as soon as you see that, you're like, holy shit, yeah, lobbying, bloody hell like that is influencing hearts and minds within westminster you know they they are definitely like behind the scenes pulling the strings of politics and we've seen the expression of this kind of recently in in many different scandals um, many more probably to come for 2024 but that that was a real eye opener on like oh my god that is how the world works behind the scenes and we as a public you know we think we elect we think we are in a democratic society, we control you know who we elect and they should be acting in our interests in terms of the policy decisions they you know that what mm-hmm. they advocate for in parliament. I don't think that's true.
0: Yeah. I, think, I, I was
1: yeah, very I think, sad.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean the American system's different to the British system, but still mm. open to influence by lobbyists. And there's a bit in Obama's book about the amount of money spent in different places, and you're just like it's it's eye-watering, but when you're if your corporation's doing billions in revenue, that matters. That that needs that the government to do A, not B. Spending ten million or twenty million is actually, in their terms, a really good investment. Um, yeah, sad, but I, I don't quite know what the answer. Is. We're back to that utopian dream. Just ban them all. Like. You know?
1: Yeah, and that's not the, you know, and that, uh, you know, lobbying will, has always and will always, you know, even if you go back to kind of uh, Greek Greek democracy, lobbying was the thing. It was individual senators, you know, catching the ear of someone else and be like, hey, like, actually, could you, like, do this Char- for Charities
0: me? Charities lobby, but for, yeah, you know,
1: yeah.
0: and who am I to be the, the decider of, um, I think that's a good thing, therefore, that charity should be allowed to lobby, and I don't like that idea, so they shouldn't be allowed to lobby. yeah. It's really difficult to kind of put some structure around, but I think it probably needs more structure.
1: Yeah, my my issue isn't that it happens. My issue is how opaque it is, and Mm. I think it, you know, we and you do have, you know, you have the donor list and all of that. But I would really love to see, like, exactly who is this politician influenced by? You know, who is my MP? I mean, my MP here, I won't name names, you can all figure out who it is. You know, took took hundreds of thousands of pounds from Russian sources potentially allegedly shall we say so that's kind of interesting
0: yeah and uh, i think there was a question in parliament about that if it's been covered by parliamentary privilege we'll be all right but um it's another one for the lawyers um but yeah (laughs) it's (laughs) moving back on a a firmer ground um you have a very interesting bookshelf behind you which is probably a question you weren't expecting me to ask uh because i didn't warn you i was going to ask this either there is a section on the website where I ask all the guests about a good book that they'd recommend to people and they tell me and I stick a link on the website. So Hey, Presto, there you go. Um, What book would you recommend to marketers to, you know, one or two that they just have to read from there?
1: Okay. Can I, can I recommend two? Can I recommend one just for like a jam? So just thinking about um, Utopia has been a theme that came up a lot. So Warden 2 is kind of a seminal book um about basically uh development of communes it's fictional about commune in the us it was highly influential in the 60s mm-hmm. and it was meant to well it inspired a wave of people thinking about different ways of living okay. that's very interesting so that's just for anyone for marketeers this is a cool one so the uncertainty mindset so it's by a really great i think he's ex google Vaughn tan and it's basically about how innovation happens within high end food restaurants mm-hmm. and what conditions do those restaurants create that allow that te- those teams to be creative, come up with amazing new ideas and really push forward the forefront of the food industry. And it's just a great way of thinking about, like, what are the conditions we create within our organisation that allow the best creativity and the best ideas to come through? So that's a, a bit of a niche one, but it's really yeah. a good read.
0: Do you, as fractional CMO, are you involved in helping to set culture or do you end up really hyper-focused yeah. on sales metrics?
1: Yeah, we do, to be fair, you know, because it's this idea that marketing actually, again, I could go on forever about this, but my thesis about marketing is, is basically the organization. It's everything. It's every kind of touch point within it. So, yeah, you know, we do a lot of kind of mission, vision, values type works, work around, you know, what what does this company stand for? What can people kind of get behind, and that's that's linked to brand, obviously, as well. Yeah. But yeah, so it's not, you know, it's not just the kind of cold hard like revenue or money. It is, you know, how do we create a place where people want to work, where people are really invested in the mission, because that obviously will lead to greater revenue and money. It's a byproduct of it.
0: Yeah. Perfect, perfect. Well, look, we're coming towards the end, and I promised Moret on the last episode that I'd bring the top tip from the um, theme tune back. Um, so basically, if, if you're still here listening, anyone anyway, though, this is I sing a really bad theme tune about a top tip, and Bethan then gives us just a, a short top tip that you can take away an action and do something about in your job when you listen to this. Okay? Um, so, <clears throat> if you're ready for my singing, it's time for a T O P T I P. T O P T I P. There you go. That, that's it. That, that's the theme tune. Okay. <laughs> That's it, everything. That's it goes twice with a bit of a click as well. I don't know why the click came in. I think I was just feeling a bit awkward. My hands, I didn't know what to do. So, yeah, top tip time
1: spend some time with finance if you can. So, if you're kind of more in a leadership position, maybe go and speak to a CFO and just say, I really want to kind of understand how we can deliver kind of better metrics to you. You know, what are you focused on? What would you like to see from us? You know, again, if you're for, if you're maybe kind of within a team, you know, say as a team, can we spend some time with finance to understand what they mean? Just make that connection, get them on board, have that conversation.
0: I love it. When I talk to junior mar- junior marketers, I often tell them I spend time with the sales team. Like Mm. go along to the sales calls with them, go into their sales meetings and listen to the things they talk about. You'll soon stop whinging about them and us and start how can we help them? Um, So yeah, just getting out of your marketing bubble. You said that earlier on, you said, why do you create such bad reports? Well, you're in an echo chamber. Yeah, yeah. And that gets you out of that. So no, big fan of that, big fan. Listen, um, Bethan, thank you very much for your time. It's been great having you on the show. And uh, if you wanna get in touch, uh, LinkedIn is in the show notes. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you. Been a pleasure.